0: Turn to uh, Matthew chapter 2, we're going to read just a few verses, very familiar, Uh, I'm not going to read the whole section because it's so familiar, Uh, but in 2, chapter 2, this is the wise men and Herod trying to kill the babies and all that, and so we're going to start in verse 13, we're going to skip verse 15 because it's in there in a literary way and we're just going to jump that because chronologically it came later, but uh, so start in verse 13 and we'll read down to uh, verse 18. Now, when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt. Remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord. uh, Excuse me, I'm not going to read that. then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious and sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all the region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled. This then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. This is the word of the Lord. So here's a passage, uh, like I told you last week, that is so familiar. You hear it so much, and we have, we've lived with it. If you're a Christian or even if you just lived in America, it's been there all your life. The story of the wise men, the magi, these these. Uh, very uh, interesting characters that come from Babylon, from the East, and make this long trek. They're astrologers or astronomers, and they're they've noticed a star. And you know, people try to identify the star and and make it with some scientific thing. It doesn't really matter. Uh, whatever it was, it was something that they saw. They recognized it portended some truth, and so off uh, off they went. So. The, the the power of this story is, uh, and all these stories of these dreams and these prophecies that uh, Matthew is recalling, uh, they have very deep meaning. It's not just the super, the superficial meaning is these angels are coming and warning Joseph or telling Joseph, giving him instructions in order to preserve the Christ child, Jesus, uh, from the dangers of this world. But that's the obvious part the not so obvious part is the message that Matthew wants to communicate to the audience that's reading this book which came probably 60 70 years after the events maybe a little bit longer but not no more than that and Matthew is telling a church that is dealing with with a lot of the things that that are very immediate in here we're centuries away we live in America. We don't have some of the things going on in our lives, but I'm going to try to show you that these things are pertinent to us and how they apply not only to that world, but this world and uh, how to put them into your life. So very briefly, you know the story. The Magi, These uh, uh, they call them Magi because they were considered magicians of some kind or some sort of, of uh, spiritual prognosticators. They see the sun, the star... And they make this track to Jerusalem because a king is born, they didn 't know all the details. A king is born must be in Jerusalem, right? I mean Jerusalem's where the capital is, where the king is. King Herod, maybe it 's one of his sons, we don 't know, but so they go to Herod and they tell Herod, uh, we've been st- coming to see the king and Herod, uh, I 'll talk a little bit more about him, his personality next week because we have lots and lots of historical information on Herod the Great. And it's very, very troubling because he sounds like a lot of politicians that we know. Uh, These guys are, sometimes they just get crazy with power and money. And he was a pathological nut. And uh, so in any case, uh, we'll talk about him more in the week. But he was very paranoid, very suspicious. So he he. Cunningly asks them where the baby, you know, what's tell me about the baby. Well, he's supposed to be born. He asks his advisors, his theologians. They say Bethlehem's a place, and they quote Micah chapter five, uh, where where the ruler is going to be born, uh, that's going to come. And so, okay, Bethlehem, got it. Will you go find him and then come back and tell me exactly what the address is because I want to go worship him too. And of course, you know the story. The wise men go. They pay their tribute to the king. And uh, and Herod, then then they get a dream, and they get sent off in another direction. And Herod feels like he's been tricked. His paranoia goes into overdrive, and uh, so he sends his soldiers out, and he kills all of these children, two years old and under. Uh, according to the time, evidently the star had appeared two years prior uh, to these astrologers and astronomers. And uh, so they, he figured, oh, I'll kill all the kids that are two years old and under, in Bethlehem and in the vicinity. Now, Bethlehem was a very small little village, probably not very many kids in the surrounding area, probably not too many kids. But uh, the fact of the matter that, you know, it almost doesn't register, does it? We're thinking about this. They would come and actually kick the door down, get the kids, and just kill them right there in front of you. And sometimes brutally so. This was not an unusual thing in the ancient Near East, although the Romans had outlawed this kind of behavior. Herod, I guess he felt he had enough chips to cash in with the Romans, so he just did it. And uh, it's not recorded in any historical uh, documents of Josephus or these other guys that were writing at the time. Um, And scholars have asked why, but probably because there weren't that many. A lot of Herod's atrocities are recorded and they are horrific. They're as bad as anything you can imagine And probably worse. So uh, that's the setting. And then in this uh, next verse is where Joseph gets this dream warning him to flee to Egypt because those who want to kill the child are going to come and search for him. And so uh, there's three things we're going to talk about this morning. First of all, preservation. How does God preserve his son? And what does that mean for us about preservation? Uh, The second thing we'll look at is enmity. You see, Herod is invoked uh, because he is a beast. He is a serpent. He's cunning. He's evil. The words that are used to describe him, his cunningness, are the same words to describe Satan. Now, Herod was not Satan, but he was certainly in Satan's pocket. And so there's... uh, Uh, Matthew is very self-consciously, listen, he's self-consciously telling the story as it happened, factually, but he's also using words and language and phrases to allude to something else, okay? So we're going to talk about enmity, and then finally we're going to look at lamentation. Uh, Christians, especially in America, because, you know, we have it pretty good here, we tend to be very triumphalistic, we can do anything we want, we can have everything we want, it's all for our taking. And so we get these crazy ideas in our head that are not in line with the gospel, they're not in line with the kingdom of God, and they can distort our thinking. So we've got to address that and what, and what real lamentation looks like. Some of you know what that is. You've lost a loved one, somebody that's really close to you, or uh, a spouse, maybe an untimely death, or a relative that was really dear, or a child. There's nothing uh, worse to, to to go through than some of those things, especially the loss of a child. And so we're going to look directly at what that looks like. And uh, uh, the lamentation that has a very profound meaning for us as Christians. So let's look first at this this preservation. You know, we're going to look at all four dreams over the next few weeks. Uh, we looked at the one last week. And then this week, uh, the, the, uh, the dream about fl- flying to Egypt. The uh, next week, we're going to talk about when he brings the angel come, says, now it's time to go back out of Egypt. I've called my son. That's the prophecy he uses from Hosea. And then uh, finally, this strange one about the Nazarene, because it's not in the Bible. Right? Very strange. And I'll explain it next week, or two weeks. Fascinating what Matthew does. He's brilliant, brilliant writer, and uh, he knew what he was doing. It's really something. Okay, so look at the preservation of God's people. You know that God preserved His people from the beginning. How did he ask yourself the question, how did He preserve Adam and Eve? Now think before you, don't answer out loud because, you know, it's church, and you have to be very careful. Lightning could strike you. Uh, no, not really. But think in your mind. What, how did God preserve Adam and Eve in the garden after they sinned? Well, one thing he did was he covered them with skins, right? He, ostensibly, he forgave them. He covered them with skins. But then what did he do? How did he save them from death? He saved them from death by driving them out of the garden. Now we think, well, he drove them out of the garden because they would eat from the tree of life and live forever, which is true. That was what he said. I'm driving them out. But why did, what was so bad about that? Because they were no longer who they were supposed to be. They weren't fit any longer for the garden. It wasn't okay to be in the garden because they had marred the image of God, the Imago Dei. They hadn't lost it. But it was polluted, it was corrupted, and so, to save their life from a, a, a fate worse than death, which would have been to live all forevermore in that condition of of fallenness, he drives them out of the garden into the east of the garden, and East was always what class do you remember uh, theology class East is what wilderness that's where the wilderness was. it was outside the garden and In a metaphorical way, the east was where you went to be in the wilderness. And you need to remember that because he drove Adam and Eve out into the wilderness to save them, to preserve them. The punishment for their sin was delayed. It was symbolized by two innocent animals being killed in their stead but they were not killed and they should have been. So immediately you know that a seed, we're told in 3.15 of Genesis, that a seed is going to be born who will somehow destroy what had happened to Adam and Eve. He's going to crush the serpent's head. So in verses 13 and 14, we're told that God is doing the same thing. He is, when the Magi departed, an angel came to Joseph in a dream, and he says, rise, take the child and the mother, flee to Egypt. And Joseph does it, and he does it at night. And the Gospel writers, whenever you see they do it at night, it's because there's danger. Night is bad time. Day is good time. And so they're going out at night when it's dangerous, when it's dark, because they are fleeing for their lives. The threat was real. Think, oh, they couldn't have hurt Jesus. Well, yeah, they could. Because He was a human being, and you need to know that. That He was as vulnerable as any of you in this room to temptation, to being afraid, to being filled with horror and, and self, you know, where, where he actually cried out to God, please, please let this cup pass. He, he, was not, he was not some superman. He was a human like us with all of those frailties. And the angel tells Herod, or tells Joseph, Herod's coming to destroy the child. Run for your life. And they do. Joseph packs them up, and off they go. Egypt was a very common refuge place for people in that whole area because it was uh, a, a, a metropolitan city. There were a lot of different nationalities there, people from all over the world. There was a population of Jews in Alexandria, Egypt, that numbered one million. Now, that's staggering, just in that one place. There were a huge population of Jews over in Babylon and all over the empire. The diaspora had not completely reversed. People still lived. They made their lives out there, and they did not return to the Holy Land. And so this large population in Egypt, and there was commerce. There was a lot of people there so you could hide. All of the things that you understand uh, that would have made Egypt a good refuge Uh, and God's people, what what Matthew is saying, he's saving the Holy Family, there's no question. He's saving Joseph and Mary and the baby. That's on the surface. But underneath, he's telling us something. We should expect to be pilgrims and sojourners in the kingdom of God because the gospel of Matthew is all about the kingdom of God and the coming of the king. And so he's telling kingdom people, even though the king has come, even though he is going to destroy our enemy death, It's an already not yet thing. I've talked about this before and those of you, uh, I'm sure that uh, uh, Luke and Ben remember this from school. This is elementary stuff. The already not yet character of the kingdom. Jesus inaugurates the kingdom when he comes. But then there's a time of not yet. That's all the time between his uh, ascension into heaven after the resurrection till he comes again. This period of time are the last days. They are the final days. However long they last, they're the last ones. And God is going to come at some point. We don't know when, but He's going to come at some point. And then we're going to have this second advent of Jesus when He restores all things. But in the meantime, we live here. And everybody in this room, unless you're a little bitty child, most of us uh, in this room have already felt the effects of living in this world where we are in the world, but what? Not of it. And we try different ways to deal with that. Some Christians are great at cloistering. They hunker, they bunker, they get into compounds or they hide out in their, in their, their house. And on Sunday morning, they're like clams. You know, they'll, they'll peek outside, make sure it's safe. Is everything okay out there? Okay, I don't see anybody. Go, let's run to church. And zoom, they run to church. And if I'm describing you, uh, good. And they run to church. Okay, we're here at church. Thank God we're safe. And then when they go to the car, they, you know, peek around, make sure there's no bad people out there. You just left a building full of bad people. All right, so... Okay, so then, you know, we scurry home. That's hunkering and bunkering. That is not kingdom living. You're, you're actually committing some pretty grievous sins. The other way that Christians have done, oh, let's be friends with the world. We can be, oh, yeah, yeah, everything's okay. No, everything's not okay. And there's no balance. It's not like you find balance on that continuum, right? What, what did I tell the theology class? Where is, where is the answer? It's not on the continuum. It's getting off of it and going and living The gospel. With Jesus as your king. And so our citizenship is in heaven. The kingdom is not of this world. Jesus told Ligon Duncan, who's the president of RTS. Ligon said one of the greatest tragedies in church history is that when Jesus said my kingdom is not of this world, nobody believed him. And from that day till now, Christians have been enamored with power and influence. From the time Constantine ostensibly becomes a Christian and the Roman Empire becomes the the religion of the Roman Empire, we saw nothing but disaster. And we will continue to see disaster as long as we get in bed with that demon of power and might and strength and thinking that's what's going to carry us. When we're serving a Savior that said everything opposite of that. That while you're living in the not yet... You are going to be a pilgrim. You're going to suffer just like every... Unbelievers get cancer, you're going to get cancer. Unbelievers have bank accounts that won't uh, balance, you're going to have bank accounts that won't balance. Unbelievers are going to have their children stolen from them and so will you. And the only thing that you can do in order to overcome those is to know that you can go in close to your Savior. Not that you don't grieve. Not that you become happy-clappy and you put on this fake Christianity. No, you'll grieve more. You'll grieve like Rachel. You'll weep. You'll be inconsolable, which is what we're going to talk about in a moment. But it's going to be good, healthy grieving. And it will make you a different person. It will change you into somebody that other people can start to rely on as being strong. And you become salt and light. Isn't that what you want, church? Don't you want to become salt and light? Do you think you're just salt and light by, just by accident? No. You're salt and light on purpose, but you've got to get out there and be salt and light. And if you're hiding away in a bunker, afraid of the world, and oh, it's all so bad, and there's you know, all these cultural influences, they've always been there. And the church always succeeds when it gets off the continuum of trying to make peace with the culture, or just going and hiding from culture. And we go and we get with Jesus. We do amazing things, and we can do amazing things if we will if we will trust the Lord. Our citizenship is in heaven. So when Jesus said, "My kingdom is not of this world," what He means is it's not from this world. It's not this kind of a kingdom. It's better. And that satisfied Pontius Pilate. He didn't feel any threat. He should have felt the threat because Rome was burning in 400 years. It was gone. And it wasn't gone because of the Goths and the Visigoths and all these other people. It died because of Christianity. Jesus drove a stake in the heart of that last image that uh, Nebuchadnezzar saw with the iron and the feet of clay and the feet mixed with clay and you know iron clay. He, Jesus, the little stone, and he destroyed the whole image. It all fell down and it's never coming back. Never. It's gone. So God has always preserved His people and He's always wanted the people to have some what of a pilgrim understanding. You know, even when they built the nation of Israel and David became the ideal king and was doing everything right and conquering all his enemies around and God was giving them peace and he was grooming his sons, uh, probably Absalom, uh, maybe thinking of Abijah, Solomon was not on the radar, but he's thinking about his sons taking over and he's making preparations for the temple and he does pick his wise son Solomon to be the king. And Solomon, just so you know that I'm not making this up, Solomon himself with all his wisdom, here's what he said when he built the great temple. Shall God live in a temple? Can he fit in this temple? No. The heavens, this was Solomon in front of the entire nation with his hands. He was on a gold pedestal. His hands were up. He said, shall God live in this building? Now, The heavens of the heavens cannot contain him. And Solomon was just telling those people there, don't put all your hopes in this building. Even though he didn't know it was going to happen. We can't put our hopes and things in this world. We're not of this world. We're of another world. And it's not heaven. It's going to be a new earth. A recreated earth. Revelation 21. And we see a new temple coming down that's indestructible, that can't be destroyed because of the materials that are used. And the gates are open because everyone is welcome. You don't have to lock them up at night because there's no more darkness, no more fear, no more tears in that kingdom, but it's going to be here. So God is preserving us for this world, not for some ethereal existence in heaven, okay? Everybody good with that? Heaven is not our home. That's, that's bumper sticker theology. Heaven is not our home. Heaven is our temporary place where we wait to come back here because the earth is our home. We've been made for this. Made for the earth, we are flesh and blood. And Jesus took flesh and blood and was resurrected so that we would never doubt that we belong here with Him in a new created heaven, new created earth. Doesn't that do something for you? That we're not just on a cloud floating around with a Gibson guitar? <laughs> and then that the preferable people have fenders? Fenders? Right, and then there's the elect that have, you know, some. What is that thing that Steve Vai Steve Vai plays? Some crazy seven-string guitar. I know, because my son has one. So, think about it. He loves painting. He loves music. He loves sports. He loves rodeos. He loves. He loves medicine. He loves technology. He loves everything except sin, sin notwithstanding. But His creation, He made all the beauty, all the diversity, all the wonder of this world, not so that it could be extinguished in a a massive nuclear meltdown of some kind and an apocalyptic end and we're going to go float away into the clouds. That isn't what He's talking about. He's talking about completely remaking this without sin. And everything that we do here, you know, my dogs are getting old and I know they're going to be in heaven. Because they're better than your dogs. (laughs) And Mark Twain said, if heaven went by merit, our dogs would get in and we wouldn't. So, you, you know, I don't know. Lots of that speculation, folks. But you cannot imagine. Eye has not seen. Ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into the heart of man. The things that God has prepared for them that love Him. But He has revealed them to us. Nobody else knows, but we do know. We know that Jesus is going to descend from heaven with a shout and all the armies of heaven, and he is going to put right what is wrong in this world. And there's nothing wrong with beauty and art and science and technology and love and caring and goodness. All of that, he's going to put it on steroids. It's going to be so wonderful. We can't imagine it. Paul went there. He said, I saw it. I just can't, can't describe it. But it's something else. And so we are to live in this world but not be of it. We're not from it. It's not our nature to take on the things of this world. But we're certainly not to hide and hunker and bunker and run away from it. Second thing is he talks about enmity. You know, I did a series of, of Advent servants, sermons years ago, and one of the gifts, there were about gifts that God gives us, and one of the gifts I mentioned was the gift of enmity. Do you know in the garden when we sinned, uh, God put enmity, it's, in Hebrew it says He put it there. He injected enmity between us and the serpent. Why? Because we had totally given ourselves to the serpent. If He had not put enmity between us, if He had not shown that grace in putting enmity between us and the serpent, we would be lost today. There would be no hope for us. We would be in thrall. We would be like the orcs in Lord of the Rings. We would have been wonderful at one time and now destroyed and and not even recognizable because the image of God is so marred and so bad. And God put this enmity between us look at verse 16 Herod felt tricked by the wise men he became furious and this is he went into a red hot rage and next week when I talk to you about Herod you will know this this man was probably insane he made Hitler look like uh, one of the Disney cast members he was that bad He even shocked the Romans and they were pretty brutal. And the Romans were taken back by the wicked evil of this man. And furthermore, he was not a Jew, he was an Edomite. And the Edomites, you know, the whole history of the Old Testament, they are one of the people that are always trying to destroy Jacob because the Edomites descended from the other brother Esau, the red one. And that's a reference to communism. <laughs> gotcha. Well, there are people out there that say s- crazy stuff like that. No, he was the, the fact that, that Edom ends up, or Esau's tribe ends up being the ones that persecute um, uh, Israel. Very interesting. We don't have time to talk about it. But the enmity was real. It, and one scholar said this. I loved it. And he said it in kind of old English with these and downs, but I'm not going to do that. Uh, it was not the wise men who trick. He said, who trick thee, O Herod. It's not the wise men who trick thee, O Herod. It is God who played the trick on you. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage? Furious. Why do the nations rage and the people plot in vain? The kings and rulers of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against His Christ, His King, His Anointed, His Mashiach. Right? Right? He who sits in the heavens, and they say this, th- these kings are crazy, they say, oh, let's burst his bonds, let's throw him off, he can't hold us in bondage. God, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Let's burst his bonds, and the Lord, he who sits in the heaven, laughs, he holds them in derision. In other words, God scorns them in their foolishness. It's a really remarkable uh, psalm. Uh, I, I, I won't, I won't quote the rest of it because I think you all know Psalm 2. And if you don't go read it, it's amazing. It's a psalm about the king, the true king. And God laughs at Herod and mocks him. Jesus told us, look, this enmity is real, folks. And I think that in America and, and a lot of times in the church, we have gotten the idea, in fact, you don't have to go very far from this building to go into other places where they will tell you that everything should be health wealth prosperity money you should have you should everybody should be driving a mercedes benz you should never get sick because god will divinely heal you and on and on have you ever heard that that's a false gospel and that's what we have it's an american gospel very uniquely american and we're selling it just like mcdonald's to every other part of the world some of the most impoverished nations in the world are buying into this idea that if they give their their uh, money to this evangelist over in Nigeria somewhere that he can cure them by having them drink gasoline. You haven't heard that? You guys need to get out more. Uh, There's an evangelist over in Nigeria who has people drink gasoline because he says, I can cure you of AIDS. Drink gasoline, and he does. They die. So they're cured all right. Crazy stuff, folks, and we have got to understand that we live in a world that's not Disneyland. Come on. And Christians, we, our hearts should ache as we look around. Even though we live, in a, we live in a land of milk and honey, I mean, my gosh. But still, you look around, you see people broken every day. Sometimes they have a lot of money, and they're still broken. We see that all the time. Jesus said, if they hated me, they're going to hate you don't be surprised if you have to like I said earlier if you get cancer you get if, if some unbeliever gets cancer some believers going to get it if so, we are going to go through the same thing but hopefully we are people who are to have hope and to actually be able to in in Go into our suffering, into the problems of this world, even into alienation and disenfranchisement if necessary, for the sake of the gospel and expect it. And Jesus said, You will have tribulation in this world. But what? Be of good cheer. Why? Because of your willpower? No. Be of good cheer because I've overcome the world. Find your refuge in me. Find your refuge. In me. So he wants to seek the Christ child to destroy it. He is the beast. He is the serpent. Not the only one, but he he in some way represents the beast and the serpent. And in the book of Revelation, if you remember from our series earlier uh, last year and early in in this year, uh, in the book of Revelation, in chapter twelve, we get this amazing vision of this virgin who is about to give birth to a child, and the dragon, the beast, is there crouching, waiting for the baby to come out because he's going to devour the innocent child. And God snatches up the child and hides him where? In the wilderness. He hides him in the wilderness, because that's how God protected His people. He took the threat, but He didn't take them to safety in the heaven. He doesn't take us in, up there somewhere. We have to stay here, and the suffering may continue. But Herod represents that dragon. And so Matthew is telling us... God's protected them from, protects the Christ child, and you'll learn about this when you get revelation in 100 years. So they they know all these things. They've got this idea that God's going to make all clear to us, and he has. Jesus escapes, but beyond that, he's telling us the whole book of Revelation, the whole book of Jeremiah, the whole book of of, uh, um, uh, these prophecies, each one of these prophecies point us to the fact that we're still going to live in a world that is hostile to us, that we're in enmity with the world, and yet we're called to love the world and to renew the world, to take care of the world without being worldly and loving the world per se. You, you get it. There's tension in Christian living. If you haven't felt it, you should, and you will at some point. The kingdom is already not yet. Matthew is telling the future church If he didn't save Jesus from the wilderness, not going to save you. You're going to have to do your time in the wilderness. Do it like he did. Do it like he did. Reject Satan. Quote Scripture to Satan. Fight the good fight of faith. Don't give in. Don't buckle underneath these pressures. Look to the one who who is the king, the true king. That's what the gospel is. It's an announcement that the true king has arrived and you can put your trust in him. Come what may, no matter what happens, you can trust him. And Matthew is making that case. And finally, look at verse 17 and 18. This is truly remarkable. I pray to God he gives me the words that I can communicate this. Lamentation. He reaches back into the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15. And in chapter 31, verse 15, he drops this quote in about Ramah and Rachel weeping for her children with loud lamentation and she refuses to be comforted. You see, there weren't any Christians around her with all these uh, cliches like, oh, you know, God works all things together for good. You know what? Say that to a mother who's just lost their baby. And then you better get ready because you're going to get socked in the mouth. And if they don't sock you, their pastor will. Don't ever do that to somebody. Don't start quoting Scriptures when there is an inconsolable grief that needs to be expressed. It's good to express lamentation. 75% of the Psalms are either complaints or lamentations. David lived in a very rough environment and he was always crying out to God. And always suffering. And so Matthew invokes Jeremiah and says here's what's happening Rama, Rama was this place a couple hours north of Jerusalem, and it was a a holding station, a place where they would gather the exiles, and this happened over and over again, where a nation would come in and conquer uh, the people of God, and they would round everybody up, man, woman, child, old person, and they would march them out into the desert, to this place of Ramah, where... uh, where Rachel, the wife of, of uh, Jacob, had died, having Benjamin, her last son, the twelfth of the twelve sons of Jacob, and he na- and they named him Benoni because that means child of my sorrow, okay, or my grief, and she died giving birth to Benjamin. And Rachel, so this this. Idea is coming into the fabric of the people of God that Rachel is weeping for her children. And then later, Ramah becomes this staging area where all the people would be gathered, the whole population, they would take everybody to Ramah and to this holding pen and then they would start separating them like the Nazis did at Auschwitz. You say, you over here, you over here, oh, you're too young, or you're too old, off with your head, oh, this little kid here is crippled or disabled. Kill him and just they'd get all the fit people, the good people, the educated people, and they would start shipping them north to Babylon or to Assyria. They would ship them north, and, and parents imagine you're there, they're dragging your child away. Maybe one of them they kill because he's sick and weak, the other one they let live, and all you can see is somebody dragging your child off, and you never see them again ever. They're gone. Or you're a husband and your wife's being dragged off. You know what's going to happen to her. Or you're, you're a wife with the children and you see the husband getting dragged off and you know what's going to happen to him. The grief is inconsolable. It is a horrific event. And so Matthew brings it back and he says not only Jacob and, and Joseph having to flee into Egypt and, and Rachel crying for her son as she dies because she's never going to see them again. Not only that, but Babylon and Israel and being uh, uh, deported to Assyria, to Nineveh, to the great Assyrian kings. Not only that, but now the beast has come and has killed our children. And these children, these innocent children, lose their lives for the sake of Messiah. Now let that sink in for a second. Listen to what John Calvin said. You've got to love Calvin because, man, when you need something that will just take a stake and put it in the heart of the truth, this is the man. He does it. Your affliction, he's talking to Rachel, your affliction in the loss of your children murdered for Christ's sake shall not be fruitless. As it was the case in giving birth, the child of your sorrow, Benjamin, your grief shall not be perpetual. The exiles shall return and the land will be inhabited again. Let me ask you just to do a, a real quick, I know we've got to finish. I want you to think of someone that was clo- the, the dearest person in your life. Maybe a father, a mother, an aunt, an uncle, a child. Maybe you've lost a child. Think of the person that your heart aches for, longs for, that that you're inconsolable because you don't have that one the way you want them. And imagine one morning you wake up from the night of sleep. And you get up and it feels good. Everything's feeling good. The, the, the sun is shining. The world is bright. The air is crisp and clear. You get your cup of coffee and you go walk out. You're going to go get the newspaper and you step out and there's an unusual brightness outside and everything looks glorious and the birds are twittering away and, you know, the, the, the air is clean and sharp. And walking up the steps is that person. That your heart has been longing for, that you lost some time back, and here they come and they're them, just like you remember them. Only there's something different about them. From underneath their skin, something is glowing. Something is is beaming out of them. Some beauty, some glory. So they're them, but they're really not them. And you're looking, you're saying, Oh, what? I can't I can't get my head around this. I can't believe you're alive again. I can't believe you're back. I lost you in Bethlehem. The Romans killed you. But I've got you back now. And there's something different. Then you notice the cup of coffee that you have, and it's better than you've ever had. And you notice that your skin's glowing too. And you realize that you've just woken up from the resurrection from the dead into life and those people are there jeremiah 15 is the reaping at rema jeremiah 16 and the entire chapter around it jeremiah 31 excuse me verse 16 the whole chapter of jeremiah 31 is all about restoration. And listen to what the next verse is after the weeping. Listen. One day, the voice will cease weeping. Eyes will cease from tears. Your children shall come back from the enemy. If you've lost somebody, they're coming back. Can you say amen, Presbyterians? They're coming back. Satan does not have the final word. Neither does the grave. Neither does Herod. Neither does the beast. The lamb has the last word. One day, the voice will cease weeping. The eyes will cease their tears. Your children shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future. A new king will come. A new king who for your sake, And your children's sake will go into death. Go into exile. Go into the desert and be afflicted by Satan. Be crucified for you on a cross in your place. He will die for you. He did die for you. And our hope is all wrapped up. Yes, they die, we die. Jesus also died. But He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead and when he did he took the sword the word of his mouth and he held it over the serpent and he drove that sword through the heart of death, hell and the grave forever. And Matthew is telling us lament now but rejoice later. In that same chapter, he says, I'm going to create a new covenant with you. Verse 31, you all are familiar with it. I'm going to create a new, I'm going to do something new. I'm going to put in you a new spirit, A new. I'm going to take the heart of stone out. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. And and nobody's going to need to say to you, know the Lord. We're all going to know Him from the greatest to the least. He'll never leave us, never forsake us. Will you trust Him? These days we live in are no different than anybody else's days. We think they're worse. They're the same. They may be better than some. Better to be sure than Bethlehem. So trust your Savior. He will not fail. Father, uh, we love you. We thank you. I pray that every Christmas we will never forget those poor children that died for the sake of Messiah. And God knew that not one of them would be lost because Messiah would die for them and for us. As we come to your table, Father, we ask you, please feed us in our hearts by faith so that we can trust you. Strengthen us in our weakness. We love you and we want to serve you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Please help us. Amen.